Welcome to Bach Lab, the podcast by Emanuel Music, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia Dorian, and I'm joined in this episode by composer Mason Vines. Mason was commissioned by Emanuel Music to write a motet to be paired with a Bach cantata. Her motet, A Piffentide, is to be premiered this Sunday, February 5th, at Emanuel Music alongside Bach cantata BWV 92. It was really wonderful to get to chat with Mason about this collaboration and premiere, as well as explore her compositional style and musical outlook as a whole. She's a truly fresh and insightful perspective, and I really look forward to both her premiere and anything she does next. You can visit our website, emmanuelmusic.org, to learn more about attending the presentation this Sunday and about our cantata series as a whole. Enjoy! Hi, Mason. I'm really excited to have you on Bach Lab to talk about your upcoming motet premiere. Could you just like tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this field um, and like kind of what brings you here today? Sure. Yeah. Well, first, it's really great to meet you. And thank you so much for letting me come on your podcast. Um, A little bit about me. I am from Sugarland, Texas, and I grew up in kind of a musical tradition. And I kind of knew that I was going to do something with music because I was a huge fat choir nerd. I grew (laughs) up doing a bunch of like Bach cantatas and uh, Bach chorales. And uh, in high school, I was a huge choir nerd and was like the choir president with my friends. And during that time, we started to sell singing Valentines at lunch where we would like adorable, c- like arrange songs and we would mash an old song and a new song and I'd accompany us on guitar. And that was very formative for me for composition. I guess it started as arranging. Then I took all those skills to my undergrad at the University of North Texas. And that's when my world really opened up, not just with composition, but also singing. I was trained as a classical singer and I wanted to keep that up. So in addition to all of my composition classes, Classes. I still sang in early music ensembles. I sang in choir. Mm-hmm. I did opera. I did jazz just because it was my networking kind of thing. I could show up for a gig or show up for a rehearsal and introduce myself and get the ball rolling. Totally. And then I moved to Boston, got my master's in composition, and I'm currently here working as a career services advisor at the Berkeley College, but then also keeping up my composition and singing career outside of it. I love that. Um, I want to hear a little bit about like your sound as a composer, some things you've been working on. How was that kind of facilitated by this kind of diverse combination of the classical music, the jazz, the mashups, arranging, even being at Berkeley, I'm sure there's a lot of different influences. How would you describe that coming together? Yeah, totally. I think it's something that I really embrace mm-hmm. as a composer. I am very curious, I think, in my l- listening as well as my performing. So both of those worlds have allowed me to um, be curious in my composition as uh, styles. And it's allowed me to figure out how to blend genres, because mm-hmm. I think that's a really great way to bring listeners together. So I think it comes out, I think in a lot of my music, you can hear my choral background and singing kind of background, but there are some nuances as far as chordal structures or transformation or uh, even technique with some of my string writing or guitar writing. Um, that's when I'm able to bring all of those things together to try to make it eclectic. Really neat. Could you speak to some of those like specific influences? Is there like, you know, could it be an album or a symphony or like what's some piece that has inspired you? Totally. I would say 
Well, in college, when I was in my undergrad, when I was figuring out what composition means and all of that and who did it, (laughs) uh, Aaron Copeland had a huge impact on my writing. Billy the Kid, um, in the beginning, his choral work, uh, Appalachian Spring, all of those, his, his tone world and colors just aligned in a way that was really pleasing as a singer, but then also pleasing as a listener. So that had a huge effect. But then I also loved like Alice Coltrane and her jazz harp playing. And Mm. I love Louise Bonfa, who's a Brazilian guitarist, who's also kind of leaning on the jazz side. And I grew up in a gospel tradition uh, when I was living in Texas. So I sang in church, I sang a whole lot of gospel tunes. So I think all of those colors and transformations as far as music and sound uh, were very influential for me. Absolutely. I'm curious a little bit about this um, religious tie-in, especially as we move into talking about, you know, a manual and and what that's going to look like. Do you feel that, I don't know, there's a certain messaging that you feel is important in your music or how is it inspired by this religious tradition that you grew up in? Recently, I think my, I had a pre-concert talk a couple days ago with some friends for a premiere. And I think that my protest in life is joy. Mm -hmm. Like being able to foster some type of joy or some road to joy or some connection to that place, even if the narrative is not necessarily that. Um, Gospel music has so much joy in it. And every time when listening back to Kirk Franklin or listening back to Fred Hammond and remembering those songs, there's just a like spiritual movement when remembering those songs. Um, and again, it kind of ties to the colors of that music and uh, how that really uplifts the narrative, the religious narratives or you know, faith-based type of topics. I think that that experience has helped me to understand text definitely and how that resonates with everyone, what prayers mean, whether they're written down or, you know, we're speaking them out Mm -hmm. loud just in, I don't know how you say that, not improvisation, but just like free speech. I think that's also kind of been uh, definitive for how I approach text and set those things. Yeah. I mean, there's so much so much there, like just the communal aspect of music and the the lineage of it all. Like you said, knowing a tune and being able to experience that with a lot of people, I find so powerful. And especially in vocal music, it's just so natural, I think, for us to to relate in, in like refrain and like vocal refrain. Um, I'd agree. I think it's so fun to like sit with a piece of text and figure out the voice of the poet. But then since we're alive today, what is the voice that we're bringing to it today? And there's always this element of surprise when going through text and thinking about what kind of words spark some type of color, what kind of words spark some type of, you know, emotion or refrain, as you said. So I agree. Yeah. What is your experience or practice of of writing with words do you borrow do you write poetry yourself um both how does that look for you yeah that's a great question I think it's interesting before I was getting really serious with this whole composition thing I was writing a whole lot of whiny singer songwriter songs and that experience really helped me understand like 
vocal line, um, delivery, refrain, antecedent, consequent, all of that stuff. Then I went into formal training and that really solidified it. So I'd say like now my approach, sometimes when getting a piece of poetry, when reading it out loud, immediately I'm able to feel where the inflection is and imagine or audiate some type of line. But if there's, and sometimes that's the easiest, obviously, when the poetry kind of rhymes. But when it doesn't, <laughs> that can be a challenge, but it's the in the best way because it really challenges the way that I have to approach it as a composer. Um, and then even challenge the way that I think of form, since it's not necessarily a rhyming type of text. How can you keep the form interesting and transformative? Uh, how can you linger on a word longer? There's way more action when um, the poem isn't as expected when you're reading it. So I like to sit with it first, and then if it's immediate, I'll transcribe it or audiate it or vocalize it into my phone. And if it's not, then I'll really sit with it at a piano and think about what the words mean. Yeah. And so are you borrowing these texts or like, for example, in your motet, um, where are these texts coming from? Is it, did you write it? Yeah. Um, it's from Isaiah 60 verses one through six, um, and it's expressing the um, epiphantide, arise and shine, all of those things. This seems like a good transition into your motet um, being paired with Bach Cantata BWV 92. I'd love to hear about the work that will be premiered um, and then its connection to the cantata, if you thought about that or like based it off of it somehow and we can talk about themes. Yeah, totally. Uh, so when I was approaching this piece, at first I had to become familiar what with what Epiphantide was um, and understanding mm -hmm. the celebration of all of it. Um, and so when I, I had gotten an email from Brad about uh, the Bach Cantata and I had listened, there was this video, I can't remember who it was, but there was a choral group that went through each section of the work um, in an, kind of like a pre-lecture uh, for a concert a pre-concert lecture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he played through uh, the big chorale part and kind of forgetting what the text is there. Uh, and so I wanted to capture the opening of it towards the end. Mm -hmm. So anyways, to get to the text, uh, I just like the text with this chapter in Isaiah. Um, it's very forthright and it's very compelling and it's very inspiring when we're in, when we're about to enter this bleak midwinter, which now I really understand living in Boston. Yeah. Um, and so these words like arise, shine for thy light is come. And the text comes from the uh, New King James Version. Um there was just this like kind of in the beginning type of energy from Aaron Copeland's in the beginning mm -hmm. choral work that I was really inspired by. That was the first thing that I thought of when reading through the text. Um, and then I wanted to have uh, these small chords that um, alivened the text, like on the words arise, shine, uh, glory, light, all of those things. I wanted to pay homage to Bach by having very small hints at a fugue or very small, like, gestural types of uh, lines mm -hmm. that would kind of uh, pay that homage. But then again, uh, towards the end, there's a quote from uh the Bach Cantata 92 uh, that gives a reference to the cantata that's going to be performed on Sunday. What line did you choose? I'm so curious. The singers sang 
Ich haben Gottes Herz und Sinn. So that melody is brought down to the tenors and basses, and it fits the last couple of lines of the text from the Isaiah chapter. Mm. And while that's happening, yeah. the sopranos and altos are singing a recurring figure from the beginning of the motet from the words Arise and Shine. Uh, but in an U-shaped vowel. So it's kind of fun to bring Bach's timeline and my timeline together in that space uh, during the motet mm-hmm. and to bring both sound worlds together as well. I love that. Absolutely. And I'm really excited to hear how that plays out. And whenever you think about, I don't know, I love to think about like kind of the context of of a concert, of a work, um, to hear your motet and then to hear the cantata will be like almost a reverse of right. that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna we're gonna hear your line and then think of it like kind of the opposite of the way it was conceived in your in your piece as as a part of the other thing. So yeah. that should be a really cool experience. Um, I was just reading through the libretto of ninety two and trying to like really get a feel for what it is talking about and. Um, like you said, the the bleak midwinter epiphantide season. Um, and it seems like, you know, bleak is a pretty apt word for the sentiment. Right. Box sentiment. Um, kind of like a, you know, follow through even though it's it's painful or uncomfortable. And, you know, you will be rewarded, but it, it will not be in this lifetime, perhaps. Right. Um, that's just another... I don't know. You're bringing you're bringing joy. You're bringing the sunshine, like you said, um, and so to have that be in pairing with this, I think is is rich. Um, did you did you think about that at all when you were writing? Yeah, I did because Bach can really bring the drama when it comes to these types of narratives, um, and it's very large and impressive and like uh, challenging and focused. And so, and we are talking about something that is a little heavy because winter's long and there's a lot of darkness that we're surrounded by during that time, especially up here in the Northeast before. I don't know, May or June, whenever that is. So yeah, I like really wanted to have something that was, how can I say, like a small dessert to box um, a major cantata, something that's light, a little fresh, still paying homage to um, his uh composition and structure, but still keep, as you said, like bringing that joy, holding space for it um, and figuring out what light sounds like. Yeah. What would you want like a listener to take away from the experience of your piece and then also your piece in context at Emmanuel? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to think about that. I feel that this piece, I wouldn't say, is necessarily intense and heavy. It's very light, joyous, frolicky even. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that after listening to the Bach Cantata and then having this small sweetness um, afterwards is something that lifts the spirit. Uh, pulling back again, um, just kind of to you, what are some things you'd love to accomplish as a composer? I know that's kind of heavy, but what are what are some aspirations? Ooh, yes, this is a heavy one because I could talk your ear off on this one. I feel like 
Something I do want to experience is uh, taking my music abroad. You know, I've had a couple mm-hmm. of people, uh, you know, purchase my music overseas and have some presentations internationally, which I'm very grateful for. But to physically be there and go and shake hands and say thank you to the people that are performing, but then also taking the whole experience is something I really want. Um, I think also... I have, I've been saying this for a minute now, but I really want to have this like collaboration with a fashion designer and make Mm. runway arias. Oh my gosh. I just feel like that would be so fun. It's so opera. It's like the, the demographics of the like audiences for both sides are of the same cloth. And I feel everyone would be able to delight in a collaboration like that. It's pretty lofty and out there, but I just think that it would be fun to write a piece of music that's paired with an outfit and then see my friends buy that music and buy that outfit and then play the piece like I it's a weird one but that is something that I'm like really trying to figure out right now yeah that is so fresh I've never heard of that thought of that um and it does make a lot of sense like when you talk about kind of the related um affinities of of music lovers and fashion high fashion lovers um I'm gonna pick your brain just because I haven't talked to like a contemporary composer in a minute and just something I've been thinking about I'm really conflicted by the idea of progress and by the idea of what what does it take for something to be relevant and new um I mean this is we're not gonna answer this but I would love (laughs) your thoughts about like does something need to be different to be a worthy composition or are we at the end? Have we done everything that could be done? Like, what are, what are your thoughts? Woo. That is a question. I, who, how will I answer this? I'm glad you're asking these questions. It's something that I think we'll forever be asking ourselves. um, If we're choosing to evolve and progress as you, as you had hinted at earlier, However, I'm not necessarily sure that something has to be different. I won't project. I think for me, when I'm listening to new music or I'm like searching for new music, I'm searching for something that is specific. It doesn't have to be specific to me because I didn't create it necessarily, you know, uh, upon meeting that new piece. You know what I mean? But Mm When I'm searching for something new or discovering a new artist, there is a specificity about it. There's this one cellist, there's this South African cellist and composer named Abel Salochoe, I believe is how you say his last name. Mm-hmm. And he has this work for cellos, solo cello, cellos, I think, um, called Africa is Back. And it is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And he combines soltasto arpeggio or solpanicello arpeggios uh, that are just in the swirling Mm -hmm. matter. And then you hear this choir that comes in that is layered with uh, the same notes as the strings. And it is the most rich, thick sound I've ever heard. And... It was so poignant, but it's not what I, I wasn't expecting that because I hadn't ever heard of him before. So I would say to like Mm. answer your question, I think 
it's not necessarily it is his music is different than anything that I've heard, but it's different because it's specific. So I think that art that is specific about a topic or a narrative or technique mm-hmm. or sound in general is what people look for or what people or what I look for at least. Yeah. I'm curious then, what do you think is specific about your work? Or what are you trying to get at, maybe? I like to... Okay, I'll be very honest about myself. I think some of my music, uh, my voice like literally does come through because I am singing through all these things that I want to write. And sometimes it can be a little sing-songy, just a smidge. But I think it's just because I am falling forward within that feeling of like evoking my voice and all those things. So I think my music kind of, there's definitely a vocal sound, um, no no matter what the instrumentation is, but I think color and transformation are two things that are specific, I would say, to my music. One more thing you said that I've been... um picking up on is you do have a fascination with narrative and that's one that I share as well I think it's a key way like we relate to art and we relate to the world um how does this concept of narrative fit into your composition or even your worldview yeah I'd say I think I've always enjoyed stories and I think I've mostly been inspired by the music where I can not only understand the narrative when I'm performing it, but I'm able to see, or I'm able to take in how the music is creating that narrative, um, which again, kind of comes to curiosity. Mm. How curious can you be about designing a sound that evokes a specific story or a specific character or element um, or force of nature? So I think narrative is what I would say narrative is what keeps me going within the composition process. And it's something that serves me well when I'm stuck. You know, sometimes it's hard to Mm. figure out how to continue something, um, especially if I'm writing instrumental music. Like even if there's a narrative that I have for an instrumental piece, there's no text. So I really have to rely on narrative to think about every single aspect of it. For example, I wrote a piece called Broomsticks for a collaboration with a group called XIQO. They're classical guitarists. And that piece I had struggled with a little bit because, you know, I wanted to align with the like the repertoire within classical guitar music, um, all of the runs and all of the pauses and gestures I wanted to make sure I had. But I also wanted to make sure it was modern and I was in my head, whatever. So then when I was figuring out how to write this piece, I just happened to be sweeping in my kitchen. (laughs) So silly. But I was like, huh, I am a sing-songy person. So (laughs) I was just like, what if I did this? What if I did that? And like, I don't know, just the movements of like sweeping my kitchen. All of a sudden I was like, whoa, I should totally call this broomsticks and figure out how to make these sweeping gestures that have sweeping lines within the guitar. So if that answers your question for narrative. Absolutely. I think that's like a really brilliant like framing. And I think creative processes like these can be so intimidating right because it's like outside of yourself and intangible and so I think sometimes a name or a concept can really go a long way I think totally it's my saving grace I'd say yeah yeah um is there like a moment that made you 
fall in love with music. Ooh. I, I, I think a lot of people have these little moments I'd love to hear. Yeah, I've, there are so many of them, whether it's the cookouts I would have with my family and the music we'd play during that time or singing in like the gospel tradition and s- some of those songs that are incredible. But also when I was in college, we sang the Duraflay Requiem and that wrecked me. Oh my gosh, because mm. Duraflay is such a prolific composer. And when we're talking about colors and tone worlds and transformation, like, man, can he do it? Um, but the in, in Paradisum, the last movement for that work was just so enchanting. And um, I was in choir at the University of North Texas at the time. And being able to have a moment of rehearsal every day for that section was so transformative. And the performance was also just like riveting and everyone was crying (laughs) while singing it. So, but there's so many, so many examples like that. Very grateful for those. Wonderful. Just in like the few examples I've heard from you on your influences, this, the Copeland. Um, I feel like I can tell that you love like a wide, rich harmony. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Yes, I do. So I, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Bach. Um, and I, I, I'm with you. Um, yeah. Is there anything, anything else you'd like to leave, leave the audience with? Um, any thoughts you'd like to share? Well, I guess just to give flowers to Emmanuel Music and this commission, it's really exciting to bring worlds together like this. It's great to bring genres together and timelines together uh, so that we can delight in a synergistic type of environment where there's all of these different narratives and traditions and things that have changed over time that we're standing in Mm -hmm. in this moment. And so it's really exciting to see all of these worlds come together in a commission. So really grateful to share this music. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It will be Sunday, February 5th. Yeah, Mason, um, where can we find you? Yes. So if you're interested in hearing more of my music or learning more about me, you can go to my website, uh, masonbines.org. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram. My name is masonbines underscore music. Uh, same with Facebook and the like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was so wonderful to have you. And um, again, I'm very excited. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Baklab is brought to you by Emanuel Music in Boston. If you'd like to learn more or donate to Emanuel Music, visit emanuelmusic.org slash support us. The music you heard in this episode is from Bach Cantata BWV-127, presented by Emmanuel Music on February 27th, 2022, conducted by Michael Beatty and engineered by Seth Torres. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast. Thanks for listening.